In pretty much every interview I've conducted for this podcast, I kept a constant question. How would you characterize SMU's relationship with race throughout its history? <laughs> wow. Gosh, you know, I wish I knew more, so I should say I've only been at SMU. Uh, well, I think <laughs> for the longest time, they tried to make sure it was non-existent, just yeah. ignoring Garbage. So, um, SMU has had a tumultuous relationship with race. Yeah, I realize that that's an extremely broad question. I mean, let's say I was interviewing you. Where would your mind go? Would your mind travel back to the era of Jim Crow, the 1960s, yesterday? Our university's history is so expansive, and it means so many things to so many people. It's impossible to pinpoint a moment where you can say, yeah, that captures our historical relationship with race. But regardless of their class year or relationship to SMU, many interviewees offered disheartened responses. They petitioned SMU to do more to reckon with the past. And they explored what that would mean in changing our future trajectory. It's impossible to measure the casualties of historical trajectory you know, what could have been versus what is. For example, if we better heeded the calls of the civil rights movement, would the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement during summer 2020 have happened? Would the movement have needed to exist at all? Or were these recurring movements inevitable? Earmarked pages in a longer struggle, creases that promised that, yeah, we were here and we laid the foundation on which you walk. This podcast seeks to cultivate an SMU where everyone has enough knowledge to characterize SMU's relationship with race. And hopefully, reckoning with our history will help us cultivate a more intentional, anti-racist future. Historical trajectory, history repeating itself, let's talk about it. In today's episode... Two black student-led movements at SMU that took place 46 years apart. Though these movements were born out of disturbingly similar issues, the movement's leaders responded in ways that were so emblematic of their time. My name is Anja Sanders, and my, I have two class years, 1970 and 1977. Angela Sanders will tell you her story about the Black League of Afro-American and African College Students, also known as Blacks, and their ambitious sit-in in 1969. My name is Demarcus Allen, and I am a uh, an alumni of Southern Methodist University, uh, class of 2016. My name is Layla Gully. I'm also an alumna of Southern Methodist University class of 2016. Layla Gully and Demarcus Allen will recount events leading up to the hashtag Black at SMU movement that swept Twitter and our campus alike in 2015. Anja, Layla, and Demarcus will also share their thoughts about the university's response to their respective efforts. And in the context of their recurring movements, their optimism for the future of SMU. Being an SMU Mustang to me means that you adopt the whole spirit of the place and love the campus. Athletics is an important part of my life. I don't like to do that. 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 I don't like to do that
within our nation and the world, to which I'm proud to be maladjusted, to which I hope all men of goodwill will be maladjusted until the good society is realized. This wasn't a point in time, right, that we just decided, oh, this, you know, this, this one thing happened. And it normally isn't that when you look at just the way that, that the movements kind of move across the country. How do movements even start? Well, there are a plethora of individual, cultural, and societal factors that compelled DeMarcus, Layla, and Anja to become change agents. For Anja, the dissonance between her expectations and the reality of college life played an important role. Did you come to campus anticipating that you would be engaged in activism or that you would have to be representing your race, you know? Absolutely not. It never crossed my mind. Ever. <laughs> Though um, Angela Sanders grew up in a segregated Marshall, Texas, she grew up dreaming of a normal college experience. Um, I grew up like most teenage girls, many teenage girls, reading Seventeen magazine. Seventeen had led me to believe that when you go to college, everything is beautiful. This is your first step into adulthood and independence from your parents. Um, you know, you'll have roommates that you will love. They will become your best friends. You will probably meet your Prince Charming on campus and that will begin your journey to, you know, a happily married life and everything is going to be beautiful. Not so much. You know, that may have been the case for some of the white girls, but that was not the case for us. There was really no acknowledgement of our separate but equal existence on that campus. No social events that we were able to participate in other than the occasional street dances that the, that the school would have. No Greek organizations, as I said. Um, there was a handful of us, so, you know, chances of meeting Prince Charming in that handful were slim and none. Naturally, Seventeen Magazine failed to address the systemic exclusion of Black students at PWIs in the 1960s. But when I asked Anja about the events that led up to the Black sit-in, she first told me about one moment that clarified just how different her experience would be from that of her white peers. That was not our first engagement, shall we say. Um, I came to SMU as a 17-year-old freshman from a small East Texas town and a segregated school system. I arrived on a campus of about 10,000 people who didn't look like me at all, and another nine who did. So there were 10 black students at SMU and six of us were freshmen. The first thing that happened to me was before classes even started, and it was a great shock to my system, a very hurtful experience. I lived in a dorm and had a roommate. And of course, the dorms were not integrated at that time. So if you were a black student, you either had a black roommate or no roommate at all. And before classes started, a week or so before, one of the boys' dorms, because they, they were separate, boys' dorms and girls' dorms, came over to take our dorm on a picnic. Well, my roommate already had a boyfriend, so she opted not to go to the picnic, but I did. I didn't know anybody. 
And so we walked a number of blocks to a park off campus. I was the only black person in attendance at the picnic. And what happened was that everybody sat down and they paired off and they grouped off and nobody sat with me. Nobody asked me my name. Nobody said hello, nothing at all. So I was left sitting here alone, separate on the grass for about two hours. I was completely humiliated. I was very, very shy and just had to sit there and suffer in silence for a couple of hours because I did not know how to get back to the dorm. I was completely lost. That was when I realized to my great dismay that although I might have thought I was just like everybody else, apparently everybody else didn't think so. At the very end, the resident assistant from the boys' dorm walked over and sat down and started talking to me, but that was about 15 minutes before the whole thing was over. It was extremely hurtful. Um, 40 years later, I was relating that story to a friend of mine, and, I, and the tears just started to roll. I had never cried about it. I'd never told anybody about it. But the tears just started streaming down my face, and I realized at that time that I had locked that pain deep into my heart and that I cried for the lost innocence of that young girl. Sometimes the experiences of students of color that hollow them out, fill them with purpose, inform their activism, aren't as overt as you may expect. Sometimes it's just knowing that no one sees you. And that's held true for me as a South Asian American on campus. In 2012, 46 years after Anja, Layla Gully started attending SMU. Unfortunately, she also experienced racism that quickly clarified her position. My freshman year in my dorm, I was the only black female resident. There were a couple of black RAs, but I was the only black female student staying in that dorm. The one of the RAs had a program where they put like a little piece of paper out and a, and a marker, and you're supposed to write what makes you happy. And so people were writing like puppies and cookies and flowers or whatever, right? And someone wrote black people picking cotton. I remember getting an email from my resident hall director at the time, and she was like, you know, do you feel like this was uh, targeted at you? And, you know, you know, just what are your general sentiments? And we had a whole discussion about that, and it was a big deal because they used to give tours of that dorm to incoming students, and that's actually how they found it. They were giving a tour, and one of the parents pointed it out. Like I said, I just wanted to point out that it's really the culmination of not just these experiences that we had as a larger community, but also our individual experiences that for me really just kind of came to a head once I saw that post about, you know, sorority women and black women not being able to join these sororities, even though, again, at the time I was an AKA. So, you know, it it's not like it was applicable to me. I just really did find it unacceptable. In some ways, I actually believe it's worse now than it was when I was a student. Even in this country, 
okay? And, and SMU is the microcosm of the United States. There are people who feel much more comfortable with expressing their bigotry, their anger, and their hatred. We didn't have that. We had the Kappa Alphas to contend with. The Kappa Alphas to contend with? Yeah, the Kappa Alphas. Being one of a handful of black SMU students, Anjo was forced to cope with feelings of isolation and invisibility. Unfortunately, Kappa Alpha fraternity went beyond making campus uncomfortable. What happened leading up to the sit-in was, one day I was walking across campus and I passed this beautiful Georgian-style two-story house. It was one of the fraternity houses and from the top of it hung a two-story tall Confederate flag. Hmm, okay. They declared war. Here's how a 1965 advertisement in the Daily Campus put it. Kappa Alpha Order brings back idealistic memories of plantation life and pre-Civil War days with their annual Old South Week. Yeah, not what I expected to see on campus. My peers had also seen it. And at the end of that week, there was a gathering of students, the fraternity members, who had what was called Old South Week. They would dress up like Confederate soldiers and they would commemorate the Old South and they would have their rebel rallying cry, the South will rise again. Well, that was naturally offensive. So we went en masse and that was my sophomore year. There were probably 19 of us by that time. We went to the Dean of Students, Dean Joe Howell, and complained about it and asked that they put an end to that and he blew us off. Said, there's nothing we can do. Um, they're a part of this university. Well, so were we. So since we realized how the university was going to respond to that, which was to say not respond at all, um, we decided we needed to ally with each other. And we did. We, we started a group called BLAACS, Black League of Afro-American and African College Students. Although I must say there was never an African student who participated in the group. There were a number of events, I would say, that led up to Black at SMU. This was not an overnight um, you know, movement or um, something that happened. It, just because of one particular incident. So it's hard to say what really started it. From my memory, I remember there were a few signature kind of events that happened that really sparked everyone to just feel particularly outraged. There was a fraternity that released an insensitive flyer. You know, bring out your inner thug, right? These kinds of things. That's right. Yeah. That's and the backdrop, yeah, the backdrop of this of this invite is not only a black male, like a rapper, uh, who would later come out and say that he didn't have an issue with it, which is problematic on its own. And in the reflection of the glasses that he was wearing was a, a, a stripper. Um, and then on top of that, the proceeds from the event would go to an inner city boys and girls club. <laughs> Oh my God. Maybe a couple of weeks after that, 
there was a anonymous blog post that was put out about the top 10 reasons why black women should not join white sororities at SMU. And um, it included things like because they're not smart and they don't have enough money and they don't have the grades and they're not pretty. Um, now, I take little to no offense to some of that just because I, I had already joined a sorority which I was the president of at that time, and it was a historically black sorority, and I had no interest in joining, you know, white Greek letter organizations at the time. However, the comments they were making definitely were insensitive. Um, they were racist and inappropriate. It was important to me as a black woman that even if a fellow black student did not want to join my sorority, you know, if they did want to join a white sorority, they should definitely be considered for that and not be discriminated against because of the color of their skin. This wasn't a point in time, right, that we just decided, oh, this, you know, this this one thing happened. And it normally isn't that when you look at just the way that, that the movements kind of move across the country. I think it's important to put each movement in their national context. Blacks took place in the 60s, an era characterized by rising student activism. This is the late 60s by this time, 67, 68. And there was a lot of student activism around the country. Some of it was violent. Berkeley, notably, was on fire <laughs> all the time. Um, I think that the key here is it wasn't just a single moment. Um, it, it had been year over year, uh, even events that happened prior to Layla and I stepping on campus um, that we learned about. It's all these elements coming together. And I mean, frankly, we were fed up. And this happens on top of being the only black person in your class, right? Uh, the university, you know, not responding to racial insensitivities in the past. So Greek organizations holding Cinco de Mayo parties, but nobody in your organization being of, you know, Hispanic or Latin descent. It's problematic. Um, and so those things ultimately come together and they create moments um, where Black and SMU drew a line in the sand. We decided that there were some things that we had seen that needed to be changed. And we drew up a list of demands, a document. I think there were 13 demands. We had seen that there were no Black studies program. There were no Black professors. There was no black history curriculum, no blacks in management on staff. We were not allowed to, and there were no black Greek organizations on campus or any other organizations other than BLAACS, blacks. We weren't completely self-centered though. We asked for a raise and some more privileges for the black employees. And on the appointed day in spring of 1969, my junior year, um, we had a president for our organization and he had made an appointment with President um, Willis Tate. I'm pretty sure President Tate thought there was just going to be this one young man, but he was quite surprised when pretty much his entire black student body walked into his office. So we gave him the list of demands and we sat down and that was the beginning of our 
occupation of President Tate's office. <laughs> Would you like to know what happened then? Yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but first, back to Layla and DeMarcus. A number of Black student leaders across campus all came together and we were like, so what are we going to do? And everyone's like, well, you know, Liver's got their ideas about how they want to approach it. And I'm like, look, the time is now. I don't know what all this <laughs> him and Han is about, but we need to address this now. There's no time like the present. So we came up with the hashtag Black at SMU. Like we really had a little, you know, brainstorming session and we were throwing all these ideas and Black at SMU is what stuck. And so that night I sent out a few tweets and tagged some people that I knew at popular blogs and things like that and went to sleep. And I went to sleep probably at like 3 a.m. and, you know, life was normal. And then I woke up and I was an activist. <laughs> and it caught wind really quickly and, you know, started getting the attention of people like Shannon Sharp and Gabrielle Union and all of these people, people participated all across campus and you know it, it really grew into this movement that we could really be proud of. So we gave him the, the paper and he was shocked and looked at it and said we can't do this you need to go back to class and we said no we're not going back um, and we just sat on the few chairs in the office and on the floor and on the windowsill or wherever we could find a spot. Um, there was a popular saying at the time, hell no, we won't go. I don't think we actually said that, but that was our attitude. And after upwards of six hours, tense hallway deliberations, and that persistent effort of hell no, we won't go, it appeared that all of Black's demands would be filled. From the formation of an ethnic studies program, to increased Black enrollment efforts, to a building dedicated to Black students, and all the other points that Angel laid out earlier. Angel notes that some of her classmates were even hired as SMU student ambassadors. So, that's our little tale. That's what we did. After the success of hashtag Black at SMU, student leaders took up a new old process to tangibly improve the experience of Black SMU community members. We were able to put together demands that were very strategic and measurable and had outcomes that were tangible. They drafted a 10-point list of demands asking for increased cultural sensitivity in Greek life the increased representation of Black professors and administrators, a multicultural affairs center. We also were inspired by demands that were put out by a group of Black students in 1969, which, you know, it's sad that those same requests were still relevant and also had still not been honored by our campus administration. I think we'd actually drafted our demands and then we looked at their demands and we were like, wait, these are like the same demands, <laughs> you know? Um, and so to see how little progress was made was, um, you know, it really just made it that much more important, I think, to us to really try to get something done. Yeah, no, no, Layla, you, you, she hit it on the head. Um, 
it was it was a collective effort, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I remember the nights that we spent, um, painstaking nights, which is an interesting point to make because it speaks to, I think, the the experience right, that black students, they have to have uh, in order for them to, to really get their points across or right, to be heard across campus. Um, I have yet to hear um, from any other white student on campus, generally speaking, that's had to to make the effort that we did in order for the university to hear us out as a community. And so, again, I just wanted to make that point. I, it's that's one of the things that you hear. It's a consistent theme across uh, black student communities, um, specifically at predominantly white institutions. There is this need almost um, on campus to be both an activist and a student and maybe an athlete and maybe a, a musician. Um, oh, and maybe hold down a part-time job in order to pay for tuition and maybe send a little bit back home. So um, just, just again, that's a little extra color that speaks to the reality of, of what black students have to go through when they're on campus um, beyond being just students. DeMarcus makes a really, really important point here, one that you've heard before and one that you'll hear again. Black students worked so hard to draft demands, to speak in a unified voice to the university, to express the burdens that many of their classmates just didn't bear. Many of the people responsible for Black at SMU were seniors. They were thinking about jobs, the next round of schooling, or one of a million other things, some of which DeMarcus listed. There's a critical piece to recurring racial justice movements that we've yet to touch on. Optimism. Optimism that your maladjustment today will assure the adjusted system's passage into Dr. King's good society. You so I asked. Other student activists presented Black at SMU's demands to admin. Did you guys feel optimistic that Black students' needs would be addressed? Uh, that's a hard question. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> the short answer, if I'm honest and you deserve honesty, um, is no. And I think it was purely because I had not seen that happen before. <laughs> I did. <laughs> I did. Um, I come out to campus sometimes now um, and I see black students. I, I participate in the Black Excellence Ball and all of that. I, I've been invited to speak to some classes on campus. And I couldn't do that comfortably, knowing that I had not addressed the issues at that time. See, how could I come to campus in 2020 and look at the Black students there, knowing that they were still seeing that Confederate flag? Couldn't do that. I did think, and I believe all of the rest of us thought, we will get this done. And then those who come behind us won't have to deal with it anymore. Why should they have to deal with it anymore? Why do you have to keep fighting the same battles over and over and over again? So, yes, we thought one and done. We thought that would be the end of it. Um, you know, we had raised the awareness. We had gotten them to accede to most of our demands. And we could, you know, just brush our hands off and say, okay, that's it, it's done. And that generations coming later would have a much smoother time 
and wouldn't have to face, oh, there are no there are no courses that address your history or your culture. There are no professors that look like you. And I, that's not the case now. There are black professors, although I don't know how many. Um, there are Greek and social organizations. So much of what we did has had a lasting effect, but um, apparently some things have not. I mean, I, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think that we would have even gotten the response that we got from administration and that willingness to work with us if it hadn't been for the attention we were getting from the broader community. I, in my heart of hearts, really think that if it had just been us as students kind of making a rumble, they would have just let it die and moved on and continued with the status quo. Yeah. And so it was important for us to leverage that moment of having the attention of our broader communities, national press even. I really just wanted things to happen, you know, for the students who would come after us. Um, but I really do think, had it not been for the attention we got, unless you all have heard some announcements that I haven't, our demands have not been met in, t in totality. Mm. Earlier, I made some clever analogy about movements earmarking the pages of history. Well, here's where that paper folds. In 1969, Black students asked for a, quote, Black-white ratio that reflects a true microcosm of the society that SMU seeks to serve. In 2015, Black at SMU asked for Black students to compose 10% of SMU's undergraduate population. According to numbers put out by the university, 4.6% of our undergraduate population was Black in 2020. We're going to talk about how enrollment is an imperfect metric to measure SMU's adjustment and maladjustment. But this is a critical through line between Blacks and Black at SMU. And it's something to bear in mind as we move into the next iteration of Black student-led movements on SMU's campus. One that took place in the summer of 2020. As we move past this critical point, what is the importance of SMU reckoning with our history? Well, you have to, you have to grow. You know, whether you're an individual or an organization, a school, a university, you have to grow and change with the times. Because if you don't, you become merely a relic and relics are only to be viewed in museums. Reckoning with the past, it also addresses the current situation, the current climate. It signals to students who are currently there that SMU is serious, that they're going to make the changes now for those current students who are here. And also the, the future, the prospective students that they want us to go and recruit. I'm honored to know that you and your peers are out there still addressing these issues, addressing them in new and different ways. So I'm comfortable. I, we, can, we, can, we can watch you do your thing. We're on the shoulders of giants, come on. <laughs> <laughs> We just did what we had to do. We just did what we had to do. Thank you. It's been an amazing Monday afternoon on this dreary, cloudy day. It is, isn't it? Next episode, the state of Black at SMU.